thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello here from the Fighter Pilot Podcast. As we told you on the last episode, we are returning to our three episode per month format. And so we're picking back up here on September 12th with a bonus replay of our Facebook Live question and answer segment with Jerry Turkey Tucker from last July. And we're going to replay it here. Forgive us for the audio. It's a download of the Facebook audio itself. We didn't record it separately, so we're doing our best with that. But it was a fun time with him. And you can listen to all the questions and answers that we had and some dialogue with Turkey, our F8 guest previously. And we will pick it back up with our next feature episode on September 22nd. So enjoy this bonus and we'll see you next time. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast Facebook Live question and answer segment. My name is Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. I'm Brian Sinclair, call sign Sunshine. And who is with us today, Sunshine? My name is Jerry Tucker. My call sign was Turkey. All right. Well, if that name sounds familiar to you, that is because he was guest of our episode 50 on the F-8 Crusader, one of many aircraft that he flew. And before we get started, I just want to, Jerry, provide some feedback for you on why you're here. Uh, Your hit episode was amazing. Everyone loved it. And so some of the feedback that we have, I'll read it to you. Uh, One person said, I can listen to Turkey's stories all day. Such a humble man and someone I consider a role model. This guy is gold. Uh, Wow, I could have listened to him for another six hours. Fantastic interview. I think we'll keep you for about an hour today, if that's okay. But you owe us five more. Uh, Let's see. Turkey talks about legends, but come on, this guy is the real thing. Awesome guest, and I'm grateful to hear him speak. And here's my favorite. Get Turkey back on. I don't care if he just talks about what he ate for lunch. Just get him back on. <laughs> I haven't had lunch yet. No, we haven't. Had, how about breakfast? We can talk yeah, breakfast. well, I didn't eat breakfast. I could say I had a fighter pilot breakfast. Nice. <laughs> Coke smoking. Coke and smoke? <laughs> but, okay. I, but I gave up sick. No, you look too healthy for that. All right. Excellent. Well, Sunshine, what are we doing today? So today we're going to go through our listener questions. Uh, we'll be basically Jerry here, or Turkey, I should say, is in the uh-huh. hot seat. That's right. And then we'll kind of uh, we'll ask the questions. We'll alternate. We got these questions from our listeners. Yes. And they uh, span not only the past couple months, but also geographically. They're all over, right? That's we right. Got some from the U.S. We got Australia here. So it should be a lot of fun. And uh, so why don't we just roll into it? I think we should. And if we want to add our own experiences where it applies and uh, to um, provide a balance because you're... A little, you know, generationally a little bit ahead of us, so maybe we can update that. So, Sunshine, do you want to take the first one and say who it's from and where he's from? Yeah, so I'm going to start off with Lee from Midway, Massachusetts, and he's going to talk about, he asks, so Jerry, does one, when using the gun, do you take into consideration the fact of whether you're over or not over a populated area? So, and he goes on to say, is uh, for some battle, when you're battling for your life and you can't afford to take into that consideration, if someone gets hit, is it considered collateral damage? And he says he's seen some World War II movies where people are outside watching a dogfight going on in the area. This may not be the best opportunity <laughs> or in their best interest. So right. anyway, 
Uh, you've been there. So tell us about using the gun over populated areas. Well, usually if you uh, are using the gun, it's uh, you're over Indian country. Uh, I'm not sure I can say that now. <laughs> Times have changed. We're okay. live, so it's out. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Uh, no, it's fine. Uh, you're, you're over hostile territory, and uh, those are combatants, whether they're on the ground or whether they're uh, in the air shooting back at you. Because mm-hmm. uh, usually when you are going to use weapons, um, uh, deadly force has already been implemented, right. and you're either protecting yourself or you're trying to uh, uh, take somebody out. I know, no, yeah. no I, I remember hearing and reading, and a listener actually asked once about in Honolulu during Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, mm-hmm. a lot of the damage in Honolulu was from the Navy base firing up and it came back down. And so it, I hate to say it comes to the territory, but it certainly, it it, 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 you know, when, when war happens, ugly things happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's odd you say that. I'd like to add one small thing to that. My wife and I have had this conversation several times. I've talked to it about with my children, um, who are, are all adults as well. Uh, but war is not what people see on TV. Mm. Uh, when you really go to war, um, uh, all bets are off. Uh, and it's not, uh, gee, I'm really upset with what you're doing. You are trying to... Uh, to stop things right. or to force a, 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 an ideology or you're, you're trying to do something and there are no rules. Uh, anybody that thinks so is <laughs> extremely naive because mm. uh, you are looking, I, uh, I can right now can recall several times where um, it was like the old TV show, 12 o'clock high that was mm. on. Well, ancient show for y'all <laughs> for me uh, with, with the uh, flag going off I've been there and, uh, and it's like that yeah. and there are people shooting at you and you can see the sparkles and that's every sixth you know the, the tracers are every sixth bullet that comes up you uh, can see them I mean and it's like 4th of July but it's uh, daytime um, you don't really think twice about it you don't do it indiscriminately but right. um, it, it really I hope you know um is the leaders who get us into war really need to be aware of that? I guess I, is what I'm trying to say, yes. not very eloquently. I, okay. Oh, you're doing fine. That's <laughs> I, I totally agree. That's right. you know, that's another okay. topic. Yeah, but uh, uh, you're absolutely right. So, Sunshine, with your engineering background, though, real quick back to Lee's question: a bullet that leaves the barrel is traveling very quickly. Absolutely. Isn't it going to though if it's shot several thousand feet up, slow down, and before it hits the ground? I mean, it's still a, a hunk of metal that's going to have some speed and do some damage, but it's no longer at its muzzle velocity. It's going to reach some. So, sort of terminal velocity, right? Yeah, so the kinetics are a big part of it, the momentum, mm. if you want to call it that. And yeah, usually uh, a lot of aerial combat is done with a muzzle velocity of supersonic, right? right. So the bullet's going to leave the, the barrel supersonically, but then there's drag, mm-hmm. right? So you can talk about drag, and even though your potential energy, because you're up high, so you're going to trade some of that, that height, if you will, or altitude for basically bullet speed as it comes down, right. but it, it's only accelerating at gravity's pace, that okay. 9.81, right? So it's going to be decelerating, and that's a lot of the, the oomph is because of the velocity of the right. bullet. So, the, uh, the damage is less severe on the deck than it would be up at altitude. Excellent. If you right. in the head, it's going to hurt. It's still going to hurt. Yes. It's going to leave March. All right. Feel it in the morning. Next question is from Alex, who asks, in flight school, is there a way to train for the greatest possible situational awareness, or is this just a skill that needs to be given to you by birth? And before you answer that, Jerry, were you a flight instructor? I know you've done a lot of things in your career. Yes. Were you at some well, point that I missed that? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I'll, 
every flight leader is a flight instructor. Right. I never, I was in the RAG or the uh, replacement air group okay. at Miramar for a short time uh, before I was uh, selected to go back to the Blues in 72. Uh, okay. And uh, so I was, I probably had five or six hops before I was selected and left. Okay. Uh, but in the squadron you do, uh, right, right. I did, I, I flew some, flew midshipmen around after I got my wings. Down okay. Did you make them sick? Uh, no, actually, oh, if I did, I'd never admit it to no, those guys. Not intentionally. <laughs> I, I did bruise my arm real bad throwing the barf bag out the window uh, of the, the T-34. Gosh. It was over the water. <laughs> anyway, all right, so how about can situational awareness be taught, or does it just come naturally, or does it come with experience? Keep being the last one. Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's another thing most people, especially uh, old, old farts like me, kind of look at the new generation when they come up. And, of course, uh, they, they think that we're ancient and we don't know what we're talking about. And we know they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the one uh, thing that was taught to me very early on was experience is something you cannot buy. You cannot get it any way except Living it. That's right. the only way. Right. Essay or situational awareness comes from being there. It is being in the situation. You mm-hmm. can visualize it all you want. Mm-hmm. And visualization is a phenomenal tool that can take you a long way. But visualization doesn't hurt. Uh, not understanding where somebody is when you go to turn into them and then look and see that they're behind you instead of in front of you like you thought. Yeah. That essay is... Um, that hurts. Right. Okay. And, and it can be devastating at times. So you're going to make mistakes. You remember those mistakes and hopefully learn by those mistakes. And that's why you know what an airplane pulls and it feels like that. You don't have to look and see what the speed is. You don't have to feel, look and feel what your angle of bank or what way up is. You know that where you are in the envelope of that airplane, mm. you just know it. It's got a feel to it. It's got a, believe it or not, it's got a smell even at times. Mm. It, you know what the airplane's doing. You just do. And you know that you're getting pretty close to not wanting to be where you're at. <laughs> or, uh, you know, you can dig a little bit more. Sometimes you dig past because you have to. Correct. You have to to get the airplane to get where you want it to go. And there's other ways to fly out of the envelope and still be controlled. But that's that's the SA part. It's yeah. in a fight. You get in a fight. You guys have both been there. You've been in a 4v4. 4v4. Mm-hmm. Uh, one v Yes. Well, yeah. In, in our case. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay, though. But it's still there. Right. Uh, yeah. And you know what it's like. You know, you see the guy and you know he's not a threat. You know he's going that way. So you look for the threat. Right. And if you've got two seats, you got somebody helping you out. We had one guy, Tom Soviet. He was, uh, I think he was a seal um, of the rag at 124 and F-14s later on. It was a, a backseater, but he was one of the best ones I've ever flown with because you could do whatever you wanted until he said, God damn it. When he said, God damn it, you better do it or you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, he goes, is that Sims? Sims? Yes. He's still around, I think. Uh, I think he is. Yeah, yeah. I think he, I saw him at the Top Gun 50. He is yeah. okay. a phenomenal <laughs> guy. There uh, a couple. Um, uh, uh, Jim, I can't think of Jim's last name now. He was a real that I fought, and I thought I was fighting the pilot. I was fighting the real. And he was fighting. He, but he was in the back seat. He was calling the fight. He was calling where everybody was. Yeah. You, could, you could hear it. Boy, that guy's good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he, he was he a was back seat. Right. And I had one in F-14s was equally as good. Uh Petey Weber, he was phenomenal. It reminds me of the famed, you know, 10,000 hour thing. <laughs> and I equate this also to, you know, situational awareness for pilots, but someone who is a concert pianist or a golfer, I mean, it, with enough practice, you're going to get that same level of proficiency in knowing where the keys are or putting a little bit of backspin on the ball or whatever it may be. Exactly. And so I, I think to your point, some people might be 
as with most things, maybe quicker to adapt it than others. Mm -hmm. But I agree that it's a lot of a lot of it is just the experience. You just have to be there to do it. Right? You really, really do. And, and you, you know, you have that say when you don't think about it. You've done right. something you didn't realize what you did. Right. Um, same same thing. I assume if you just play the song and don't oh, think about it, you're just in the zone. The worst thing you can do is get in your own way playing golf. I caddied on the Pro Tour for a right. while years ago, and the guy told me, you know, don't think too much. You know, I think it hurts the team. You know, you, know, you <laughs> got to get out there and just do it. You, you talk about your reaction and, and, and the SA part of it, too. I had a cold cat shot. I don't know if I mentioned that. Maybe, um, but I got it stopped because I, I'd gone through those procedures, and I knew what the airplane was going to do. Mm. And I, I could tell that I was going to stop. It was going to be close, but right. it was going to stop. Well, had had I not just had that experience, it could have been a very a different outcome. And it was to a guy who cruised before me. He, oh, he didn't mm. make it. Sheesh, yeah. So, wow. Moving on to the next question. Steve from London. Right? So he asked, have you ever experienced the serviceability or potential fault with an aircraft type you've been flying? Which steps are taken to rectify it quickly? And does it dent your confidence in the aircraft type? No, usually uh, the F-8 had uh, idiosyncrasies like that. The F-14 had them. Uh, the A-4 had them. Every, um, the F-100, I, I got a little time in that uh, during Vietnam uh, with a real short exchange with the Air Force in Phan Rang. Um, they have a thing in their airplane that when, when you hit burner, it sounds just like an F-8 when you have a closed, not, uh, we call them closed nacho lights, but closed nozzle lights. Okay. Airplane. Uh, when, they, when you went into burner, the nozzles had to open up or it was going to overtemp. And, and the airplane had a feel and the sound, uh, yeah. uh, so it had to come right out. Or I mean, you could melt the engine right there. Well, the F one hundred, that's their normal uh, catch shot. Is that? Yeah. So when I was there, take off. They said, "Okay, you got this takeoff." I think it was the second, second, first or second one. Okay. The thing. <laughs> so you got it. Never even been in this stupid airplane. <laughs> so we got out there, had the power up, got rolling, yeah. and I went into uh, into burner, and the thing did, did, and it was that same sound. I came, oh, I came to idle and boarded the takeoff. Yeah, muscle memory. It was just yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's the essay of the situation. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been there and you react. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you, you, after that, I learned. And the next takeoff, I didn't afford those rotten sounding takeoffs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there, uh, the F eight had very um, difficult to get out of a spin. I, but you had to do it right. If you did it right, you got out. You did it wrong, you didn't. I have Darwin's really, really, really good friends that are the best aviators I've ever flown with that lost an F8 because he got in a spin, couldn't get out. Mm. I got in one. I got a below average on that flight for reversals, but I got an above average for emergency procedure. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to save you. Nice, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes. Um, you know, and that that's uh, as far as idiosyncrasies and uh, deficiencies in airplanes. Every Everyone has areas of flight or areas of the way the airplane handles or the uh, way it was built and what it how it performs that you have to work around certain areas or you take advantage of them yeah, mm, true there was there was a, a legend in f-8 a guy named uh, joe satrapa we lost him uh, last spring uh -huh. uh, joe was phenomenal he wound up flying firefighters uh, oh. flying these i think yeah. through the tent i knew through the stoof and, and a couple other airplanes and uh joe would absolutely depart the airplane in areas that nobody thought could could get out of it. And then the guy do something, and then of course he'd come out of it and he was behind you. I mean, I saw him do this stuff like that. Okay. He was phenomenal. That's great. So, but that's, you learn the airplane, you use it. Yeah. Some people are afraid to go to that area. You yeah. learn what's there and how it can hurt you, mm -hmm. and you avoid the hurting part, yeah. but you use it for a lot better. Yeah, I remember uh, just to your point earlier about the different takeoffs of the different aircraft. So uh, at the Air Force Test Pod School, we called it negative transfer. 
And so that's kind of bad or habits from one jet. And now you're in another jet. So now it's a bad habit. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I experienced something similar going from the S3 to the Charlie. Uh, very different in many aspects, but then also going from the Charlie, the F-18C to the F-18E, especially around the boat. Mm. So uh, pretty much, as you probably remember, with uh, it would be water, water, steel, and you go to mill or blower to basically not Stay bottom out. Yeah, yeah exactly. I do that that's, all the time. The time. Yeah. That's if you have a Rio. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, so roll around to the Echo, and I had very few hours under my belt. And I did the same thing, water, water, steel, blower, and I took my own wave off. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I learned uh, different landing characteristics. Okay. It was a quick, steep learning curve, but by, by like the third, I think, time around the boat at night, for yeah. paddles, is like, come on, sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> it finally kicked in, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, sunshine, though, to uh, Steve's point, yeah. uh, red stripes, right? Those will come out from time to time Absolutely. if we have a surfaceability or some other fault with a fleet of aircraft. Can you describe that real quick? I know I just put you on the spot. But. That is okay. So, yeah, uh, case in point is going to be Basher. So thinking back to that, so F-14 days, uh, we were on the Kennedy, and off a of Cat 1 and F-14, the nose gear snapped off, and it was due to some internal corrosion mm. that wasn't caught by MDI or non-destructive inspection. And unfortunately, it was at the cost of a great American basher, Blasham. Yeah. Uh, the Rio did make it, fortunately, and we interviewed him earlier. That's right. But uh, what happens is they realize there's some kind of a systemic problem within the F-14s, and they weren't able to... Uh, directly ex- uh, in- inspect the airframe because it was at the bottom of the ocean. But they surmised that, hey, there's some, there's some uh, issues with the aircraft and we need to basically take a knee for the entire fleet. And they call that a red stripe. So it's an administrative okay. message that's right. sent out to everybody and says, hey, you need to ground all aircraft, suspend flight ops until you do further investigation on topic A, right. whatever it was. Yeah. We had the same thing in the F-8 when we first yeah. got the, uh, yeah. uh, the new engines, the P-420 engines. Mm-hmm. They were having compressor stalls and we lost two guys oh. in the FCLP patterns, of all things, at night oh. uh, at, uh, at San Clemente. They just went away. The airplane just boom, boom, and they went in and nobody knew no, anything. Fi- uh, did they ever find them? Uh, they found the airplanes because it's right off there. Okay. Uh, the guys didn't make it. I mean, oh, they grounded gosh. the airplane. Yeah. One or two that happened to, and oh. they, in fact, grounded them for a while. Uh, until they figure out what the heck was going on. Right. And it was what they did to get more thrust out of the engines wasn't beef anything up. They just raised the temperature in the EGT <laughs> and it sort of Great. blew up some turbines. So. Well, and to Steve's point, does that dent your confidence in the aircraft type? Mm-hmm. Steve, I would say it actually gives me more confidence in the system overall because it means we're doing those inspections. We're finding out why things happen. And then we're not just sugarcoating or looking over it. We're, we're saying, hey, you know what? This needs to be fixed and let's fix it. And me personally, it never dented my confidence when this came out like on the F-18. No, I totally agree that for yeah. me, an emergency was a chance to learn more about the system. Right. right? Yep. So, yeah, troubleshooting and also just reacting to the, the system malfunction, you know, for next time. Oh, right. this is how that system works. Yeah. Yep. All right. So Alex has another question, uh, Turkey. Mm-hmm. What was oh. the most intense moment you ever had while flying alone in the cockpit? Well, <laughs> that's a good one. Well, for an F-8 pilot, that's... Um, it's kind of an oxymoron. Uh, if there was somebody else in there, you were in trouble. Uh, but uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I I can't put a finger on one. Okay. Uh, one, the one that comes to mind, uh, well, one of them, I was flying at 42,000 feet. Uh, I, I hated oxygen masks. It's like the movie The Aliens, that big thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, every once in a while, I'd take it off for a while, and I'd put it back on. Well, I'd taken mine off. I'd had a, I had a, um, and it was this way, right? And I had a, a generator uh, that cycled on. Um, and I'm I'm on a cross country. I mean, I'm just 
you go, we, we cruised at 43 uh, and point, um, point 0.9, I think it was up okay. mm-hmm. And uh, when the thing went off, I knew it was right down here. And I reached down to cycle the generator. But it was the generator, the cabin dump, and some other Uh-oh. switch. Oh, you see where this is <laughs> going. Uh, I do. Yeah, yeah. The cabin dump in the F8 is just a, a, a little square thing that sits right here and it opens up to the outside and the cabin oh, dumps out that wall. Oh. So I reached down to grab that thing and I thought I found the edge and I went and I turned it off and all of a sudden it opened up and dumped the cabin. Oof. And of course, you know, at 43,000 feet, you're on Ouch. pressure breathing. Yeah. Well, I turned my, uh, the oxygen was there, but it was just kind of blowing. And then, boy, when I go to, the cabin gets to 43,000 feet, I, I did have an alien that was just beating the snot out of me. Oh, was just oh, all over. I was trying to get a hold of it. <laughs> my eardrums were laying on my shoulder. The, um, uh, it fogged up immediately. I couldn't see anything in the cockpit. Oh, there. gosh. Uh, and so, I, you know, the first thing I finally did is, is I got the mask on and got that thing over there. Oh, and, nice. I, and I cycled the generator and it came back on. And then I closed the cabin and it closed down and I got my voice under control. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm okay. All your body parts where they're supposed <laughs> yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, that goes along with a lot of the other questions that are here. Mm-hmm. I learned a lesson from that. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I still took my mask off at times, but I did it the other way I could see. Uh-huh. And uh, and I was much more cautious about just grabbing switches and throwing without looking. <laughs> that comes from being a little overconfident. Oh, uh, uh, that was yeah. just one of them. The, uh, one other, my last Flight in training command. Uh, it was an I-11. It was a strafe hop, low angle strafe hop, hmm. which they don't teach. I don't think that much low angle stuff anymore. But uh, mom and dad and my sister were there to put my wings on that afternoon. My dad put my wings on, and uh, uh, one of the things they warned me about was target fixation. And hmm. I started pressing the target, wanted to get good hits and do well on my last flight. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm in trouble. And I full powered. I was, I'm in an, uh, in an F9, uh, F9 Cougar. Oh. Um, full power, pull the stick, not hard back, but just pull it back. And I can, this right this minute, can remember seeing tumbleweeds. I oh, so your periphery? In the periphery. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I was in the dirt, but I got it back up and went back in the pattern. And the instructor was there, but he was in a position where he couldn't see me. And, yeah. and wow. I've done pretty well. But that would have been very embarrassing at the, um, at the least. Yeah. Well, not to mention possibly tragic. So target fixation yeah. for everybody home. Let's say we're attacking this microphone. You normally come in, you attack, and then off you go. Well, target fixation, as the name implies, and maybe it's not worth pointing out, but you just keep flying so close. And certainly people have proven one way to take out the target is to just collide with one big hit. But That's not right. not ideal for prolonged living. All right. <laughs> Sunshine, do you have an intense moment alone in the cockpit you want to share quickly with us? Uh, yeah, so there have been a couple, obviously, but uh, for me, it was an F-18C. There was a dust storm in the Persian Gulf, okay. and it had actually, it was so intense that it had grounded the Air Force assets. Mm. So just they had launched the carrier guys, and we had to fill in for the, the uh, closer support missions for the Air Force. Anyway, on the way back, I couldn't see the carrier. And this is when I didn't know about cage on cage with the ghost philosophy. Ah. So anyway, basically a shortfall in my training or my learning, really, with the, uh, the systems in the jet. So I am basically about 15, 18 seconds where we normally call the ball and I can't see the carrier at all. So it's Clara's ship is the term we mm-hmm. use there. And I broke out probably halfway down the ramp, so, or down the groove, excuse me, it's about seven seconds. And when I broke out and saw the carrier, I was actually lined up on the island, Ooh. not lined up on the landing area. Okay. So uh, I got a scream out of paddles because they saw me basically the same time I saw okay. them. And then I, uh, pucker factor was high, obviously. I, I was 
didn't talk like a schoolgirl, but I would have had I mentioned anything. On <laughs> if you listen to tape, you may have. <laughs> I blocked that out. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I actually had to go up the starboard side or the right side oh, of the gosh. ship, which is a. Uh, Usually, a predominantly a no-no, if and, you will, and then do it again, and then have come around. Yes, <laughs> you're right. And, and the worst part, Jerry, is I'm like, what? this is such a dumb job. Why am I doing this? You know, what I'm so I had to talk, talk myself down, mm-hmm. and then build my confidence back up while I'm turning downwind, sure. if it makes sense, yeah. to come back in. So that was that was my wow. story. Was that daytime or nighttime? That was daytime. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Was, I think there's a video floating around YouTube of all you see is the hud symbology and just gray, yeah. and all of a sudden the ship kind of appears, boom, uh, lands. So yeah. I can were they that. screaming like a schoolgirl? That might be my footage. I don't know. But uh, funny enough, for three naval aviators, you? Yeah. mine also yeah. includes carrier landing. And I don't have to go into great detail because it's chronicled in the PBS special carrier, uh, the oh, night pitching that one. Yeah. yeah. So people often ask me, Hey, did you know you're on this show? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> it's not a thing I'll forget, but, uh, for your sake, Turkey, long story short, off the coast of Australia, plus or minus 20 feet and, uh, three passes to get aboard. First one missed everything. Second one missed the wires. Third one did a quick AOA excursion to drop the hook and grab uh, the four. And, you got uh, the hardest part besides that though, uh, was taxiing because my legs were shaking so bad. The yes. adrenaline was like, okay, I'm done here. I need to go out. I'll go through your muscles. <laughs> and so that made it difficult to control the rudders and the brakes. And then I walk into the radio room and everybody, yay. Yeah, and then the camera's like, hey, how was that? <laughs> like, so, yeah, that was that was my most intense moment. I think we all have those moments. I, oh, yeah. I was coming yeah. aboard uh, the Hancock off the coast of Japan, oh. and uh, you could see the screws of the ship. <laughs> and then you could see it planned for them. Oh, I can remember coming around, and mm-hmm. I actually, as and also, I had to wake people in that too. Oh, you know? And I used the call. You sound good. Keep it coming. Oh, jeez. I couldn't see them. You had not turn yeah, on the, yeah. uh, turn on uh, a landing light or mm-hmm. taxi light, yeah, so you yeah. didn't see something yeah. in there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when you're blue water, it's better. That's what you got to do. Yeah, And at the risk of waxing poetic for a moment, there are men and women out doing this very thing right yeah, now around yes, the world. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. We are done. At least I'm speaking for myself. So. <laughs> I've hung it up. They're much right, smarter, faster people than I. Yeah. Uh, great. So, you know what? I'm actually going to, well, okay, let's go in order here. So, Rob Evans from Seattle, Washington asks, mm-hmm. uh, Turkey, what is your perspective on dogfighting in a P-40 or an F-4 or a P-51, et cetera? Uh, basically, more modern aircraft versus the historical aircraft. Can we say nowadays that the modern aircraft can really dogfight in the traditional sense? Uh, anybody that's been in one knows they can. Uh, uh, it it can still be a knife fight. I mean, I yeah. have been in things where you are uh, four airplanes from a guy climbing vertical canopy to canopy. Mm-hmm. You can see him over there, and you're waiting for somebody to make a mistake or to, or to fall off. Uh, the first one that falls off dies. I mean, <laughs> in, a, in a training environment, sure. it loses. Right. Um, but, but yes, I, I always thought, and I said it out loud several times, um, I always thought I was born too late. I, I wanted to fly the F-4 uh, uh, Corsair so bad. That, to me, uh, was a fighter. Yeah. I was a fighter. Yeah. Um, the F-8, to me, was the, the the one thing that was the more modern version of that, to mm-hmm. me. It was it was an absolute, it was a gunfighter. You got in, into a knife fight, you could do whatever you needed with it. Uh, you could make it work for you yeah. if, if you knew how to work the airplane. And the, the guys, by and large, uh, probably 99% of them could. I mean, yeah. you, every fight was, nothing was a given. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in my mind it was, I was not going to lose, Sure, but everybody had the same attitude and they were very, very proficient. Um, um, it was spread out more. You started, uh, you know, a couple, three miles apart. You turned in and you passed that on. You passed that on from here to the door over there mm-hmm. or closer. I mean, we've been very close and you see is going to blank. It was it was great, great fun. You watch them turn, see which way they turn, right. and then you do something they don't expect. Yeah. Uh, you try. You know, right? Well, and yeah. I wonder if Robert's question is really meaning... In other words, obviously, any two aircraft can twirl and fight, short of giant, you know, airliners and whatnot. <laughs> but I wonder if Robert's really getting at with a helmet-mounted sight and a high foresight weapon. Is it really dogfighting anymore? If you can oh, just look at the guy and shoot him, right? So, if if that is your question, Robert, well, I mean, we still train to even today dogfighting in all these aircraft that you listed because we want those skills. You want to have that aviation airmanship and frankly you could be out of missiles or you could have a problem and so you still need to know how to maneuver to your point from possibly a neutral pass to now I'm behind you and I can employ the gun if I have one. My, my not to interrupt, no, no, but, and my idea uh, shooting BDR beyond visual range uh, is not a dogfight. That's, right. right. that's an encounter right. with an enemy. When you dogfight, you are um, mano a, a yeah. mano or a mano. I don't know what yeah. oh, they say that now, but you're fighting another person. You right. are reacting and, 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 and causing, uh, trying to cause harm to another person. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I got ahead of point and it slipped. It'll come back and I'll interrupt somebody else here. While well, you dig for it, uh, so yeah, to tell yeah. his point, so to me, BFM was, I called it advanced handling characteristics. I'm uh-huh. sure a lot of folks did, but it was a chance and opportunity for you. Yes, you're going to react with the guy around you and right. try to identify geometry and intercept and all that stuff. But for me, it was learning how to really fly this plane that you talked about earlier. I mean, slow speed characteristics, mm-hmm. but you're up at altitude. And there's times when uh, stalls and stall indications, not necessarily uh, gauges, if you will, but just vibrations, senses, noises, smells, anything right. like that, has actually, I kind of parlayed it into the landing pattern because in the T-38 Air Force, uh, in the landing pattern, they, uh, from my limited perspective, they tend to fly it slower than I'd like. So it's mm. closer to stall. Their, their stall margin is reduced, which is not a good thing in a little delta wing <laughs> fighter, right? Yeah. Anyway, point being is I flew it up at altitude and kind of understood some of the stall characteristics and indications other than the gauges. And when I got in the landing pattern, I, one time I noticed some of those stall indications that was not a gauge, but it was a buffet <laughs> on the wings. Yeah. And so I kind of parlayed that BFM stuff, if you will, into yeah. the landing pattern and it helped out. So advanced yeah. handling characteristics. Yeah. I did think it's remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Time. It was great. Yeah, I really appreciate the left. Was left. <laughs> um, when you talk about uh, when all how a dogfight in, in modern is uh, modern times is when all else fails, you may be stuck with just you and him without right. bullets, without sight. Uh, well, yeah. in the F-8 TAC manual, I believe it was, or the confidential uh, supplement, uh, there actually was a paragraph that addressed that issue. And huh. if you were in that situation, you were to drop your hook and speed brakes and ram him. Wow. In the book. <laughs> so, uh, Do what it takes. that is an attitude... That carried into that in, um, uh, that group of people into yeah. in, in, into that fraternity right. that uh, permeated the whole fraternity. I mean, that's the way you looked at it. B- bottom line, we're, you're not going to lose. You're not going to lose. Well, you're going to lose or die. I mean, well, I mean, if you lose, you die, right? Yeah, right well, so, depending yeah. on perspective, right, depends right. on, on the importance of what you're there for to protect. Right. 
and what it means to you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't want to get too philosophical. No, about right, it. right. No, understood. But the ultimate price, yeah. Right. Codified in a manual. It's, uh, it was crazy. And I also, while I'm at it, yeah. there is a, uh, and I think I think it was on the F4 uh, manual. I, it might have been the F8 manual, but it showed the ship. Was the, maybe it was the LSO manual. But it showed the ship and two F4s with their hook down. And if you look on the wing, it said U.S. Air Force, U.S. Air Force. And you look at the uh, ship, and it had the captain's gig leaving. It had people going <laughs> on ropes. And they were rolling to come to the ship in section. That's oh, right. So yeah, I have seen that one. Have you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I got one somewhere at home. People abandoned oh, the ship. Oh, it was <laughs> Excellent. All right, moving on. Elliot from the U.K. This one could probably be a little bit quicker. Squadron helmets. They usually look to have white tape over them with squadron colors and emblems and a pilot's call sign. And today that's certainly the case. Is this done by the squadron and can you personalize it in any way? As a student, you can. Uh, when you're younger, you can basically. The idea behind that, it's all reflective tape. Right. And it's so that if you're in the water at night and there just any light comes over, they can see. That's the only reason for the right. tape in the first place. Uh, in the squadrons, not so much. I mean, you'll get your name, but the squadrons have uh, a basic uh, a pattern that mm-hmm. they do. Uh, I mean, it would look kind of funny when I was on the blues with everybody with a gold helmet and I had a silver one. I, uh, I mean, I, I went my own way a lot of times, but I don't think that would have worked yeah. out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all squadrons are that way. The other right. one was that way. I had a wolf on the side uh, right. for the wolf pack. Um, I, I don't ever remember seeing, other than a new guy came in or somebody that was and just... Then they updated to the Then they squadron. updated as soon as they could. That's right. exactly yep. yeah. The only thing, I, I had a number, it got up to 15. It was my just little tribute to the friends that I'd lost in oh, the business. So yeah. every once in a while, you could put, like, someone oh. who put their state flag real small right. or something. Yeah. But we all did. Yeah, yeah. 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 something like that. Did you have tick marks or a number? Oh, just a number. You yeah. Okay, yeah. If, some, if I heard of someone passing or, yeah. God forbid, observed it, yeah. I would just ask the PRs to update it by one. And the last one I have on my uh, refrigerator in the garage right now has a 15. So I think that's where I so left stops. off. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, Sunshine, you want to take the next one? Absolutely. So Chris Dean from Canada states, I was just curious on what your guys' thoughts are on the Sukhoi airframes. Mm. How do they compare to the North American airframes and the such? I always thought they were a good-looking airframe and very capable, but Chris is saying he's not a pilot. (laughs) So Sukhoi, what do you think of that manufacturer? um, I think the Russian aircraft were, uh, they approached uh, design differently than we did. They, They really didn't approach it for looks. They also didn't approach it for ergonomics. Mm. They approached it for doing what they want to get done. Right. Uh, the performance of the aircraft in, in certain realms. They, they picked up, and they would make it that way. You mm-hmm. sit in the cockpit of one of those things, and they're very primitive. Mm. Uh, very primitive. Um, I did like, I mean, I thought they were nice looking airplanes. They always look good in front of me. Well, of course, in real life, I only I had one, one bad guy in, in front of me, but well, the uh, you were very uh, I was just luckier than heck for them to happen, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, they were very good airplanes. I'm not, you can't argue with them. Uh, most of the uh, uh, the stuff, uh, the guts, and the way a lot of those things were working. Uh, even had the same mis- this mistakes in design that they had when they were on air- our airplanes when they put them on their airplanes because they stole a lot of that. <laughs> the reverse yes. engineered. Yes. We don't know why this is this way. We'll just make it that way yeah. also. It works Stalin. Stalin. Yeah, Stalin's yeah. policy was crazy about that. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, 
on the outside, they may look different, but uh, you know, there was an awful lot of American ingenuity in, yeah. in almost every Russian airplane. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the early MiGs and Russian aircraft were also designed with a purpose built. In other words, the MiG-29 even was intended to possibly advance in a war on the Eastern Front, perhaps, uh, in a Cold War, so that the landing gear was beefed up. They had fog-protecting uh, screens for the intakes. And another thing that's interesting about those aircraft, not so much anymore, but they were designed for very GCI-dependent pilots. So in other words, they didn't give their pilots the autonomy that we had. They had pilots that said, look, you're going to get up there and you're going to do what we tell you. You're going to fly this heading, this airspeed, you're going to intercept the guy, almost like an extension of an airborne, let's say, part of the IADS, Integrated Air Defense, almost like an airborne SAM shooter. Uh, but now, of course, especially with the SC-30, they've really gotten away to that and, and gotten away from that and a lot more autonomy in the aircraft. We, uh, we've gone the same way. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Uh, all of our airplanes, look at the A-4. The A-4 was built as a throwaway one-trip airplane. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what was that one trip for? Uh, to drop a nuclear weapon. <laughs> That's yeah. why the landing gear is so tall, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, Crazy. And now look, everything has to do everything now, and that's why they're so darn expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't do anything exceptional. True. They do everything well, mm-hmm. right. pretty much. But but nothing exceptional. Well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and that Russian philosophy carried over to everybody they gave the airplanes to. That's right. The guy that I got, that's what he was doing. Mm-hmm. That's why he jumped out because his orders were to engage us, and he realized he was not going to make it. He left. But it was all under control, nothing autonomous. And we were basically autonomous. Once they said, there they are, and we, we caught a glint, that was it. There was nothing more there. We were allowed to do whatever we needed to get the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just along with that Russian design philosophy of brute force as opposed to elegance. Yeah, yeah I think of the MiG-25. Never flew it, obviously, but it was really good at straight-line interception. Real fast. Go. Yeah. I did get to fly the MiG-15. Okay. And now, granted, that's a very old aircraft, but um, it was it was built. It didn't trust the pilot. It was built for a student pilot, say, or someone who was going to forget things and had a lot of redundancy, a lot of mechanical redundancy. So you drop the landing gear, and you'd have your, your light indications in the cockpit, but you'd also have little posts on the wings that would tell you that the gear is down and locked. <laughs> and apparently, the way it was designed also is that structurally, it could land gear up, and they expected it to happen, and they could just salvage the aircraft, I suppose. Just lift it up, lower the gear. Yeah, and, and I think it was because they wow. didn't kind of trust the training or whatever you want to wow. call it of the pilot. So, did you ever hear of Grumman? Yeah. <laughs> Grumman Ironworks? Yes. Ironworks. We had an airplane, jump, the guy jumped out of it, the airplane landed itself in the King Ranch. They went oh, out. Yeah. They was that the air? Put it on the truck. What? What, what kind of airplane was it? It, it was, was an F-9. F-9, yeah. There's a, is there a picture of it landed in some field, yeah, right? The King Ranch, and, uh, South Texas, South, yeah. uh, south of King. <laughs> no. Yeah, on, it's on its own. I mean, the, yeah. the guy was out of control, and he jumped out, and that stabilized everything. <laughs> it's thing just landed itself. Landed itself. Variables are gone. That's nice and stable now. Yeah, there you go. It always smelled like dirt and cow shit. But, <laughs> but speaking of smell of aircraft. Let's get back to that question. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's move on. Elliot again from the U.K. Uh, Do you guys get cold? Seems a little menial, but I realize that I don't really know how you moderate temperature in the cockpit, depending on weather and altitude, etc. Yeah, uh, yes, you get cold, and you reach down and you turn the volume <laughs> of the heat. Too right. We actually do have uh, uh, it's bleed air comes off the engine, it goes through a heat exchanger, and you uh, it feeds that into air conditioned air, and you can uh, manipulate the the temperature in the cockpit where it's comfortable. 
Was the F8 decent on the deck, though? Or did you, yeah, like, it was okay. okay. It was such a small cockpit, it wasn't much uh, okay. to cool. Or right. heat. Uh, uh, heat we, yeah. we didn't do anything real cool. Yeah. So that sounds like it hasn't changed a whole lot, because the F-18 was the same way. And I remember, Sunshine, maybe you do too, in the Gulf, you'd be pre-flighting yeah. on the carrier deck. You'd yes. be hot and sweaty. Right. You get in the airplane, you get to altitude, now you have wet clothes against you. Yeah. Or ice, yeah. Or, 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 yeah. And then the air conditioning is working, so you get cold. Yeah. So, yes, you do, Elliot, you do get hot and cold, yeah. and you can moderate the temperature, and it usually works pretty well. Indeed. Right. Indeed it does, yeah. And then Elliot continues on to say, so what happens to WIZOs, the weapon system operators, or RIOs, or backseaters, if you will, and then like the EA-6, EA-6B, when their platform is retired? So he imagines that the pilots can retrain, but is it more difficult for the backseaters to find an additional role either in the air or in the military? Now, do you want that politically correct or the fire department? Uh, let's go. Let's see. We have 33 people, so it depends on how many you go want to. Go for it. Go for it. Who cares? <laughs> No, nope, we're down to three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. my, my reel just hung out. Uh, no, uh, they are as um, re- uh, required and important in uh, in modern warfare as the pilot is. Yeah. Uh, and they are very, very, very smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they retrain them uh, from one airplane to another. They're constantly in, uh, changing equipment anyway, so you're always learning something new on new equipment. Um Eventually, they promote out of uh, that anyway, and, and they get into uh, uh, leadership positions uh, that, are, that are non-flying positions. Uh, that was ahead of all of us back in those days. Some guys like Cag Waples and some other people like that through their whole career. They never stopped. Uh, mm-hmm. Other people get caught later on when they uh, got more senior. Um, uh, well, out of the cockpit. Well, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it happens. Remember uh, Dave Slayton? He was our guest on the S3 episode. Yeah, he went absolutely. from the P3 as an enlisted man, which yeah. didn't go away, but then he was commissioned S3. But then as that started to go away, he transitioned to the uh, Prowler. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to be fair, the uh, naval flight officer tactically in the military these days seems to almost be a dying breed because everything's going to single seat. Now, we don't yeah. have the F-22, but that's only single seat. F-35 is only single seat. Mm-hmm. So we'll still have the Super Hornet for a long time. But it seems like there's fewer, certainly, on carrier now than there ever used to be. Yeah, so you got the Wizzos kind of, I don't, I don't want to say aging out, but yeah. Right. But also the, the pilot concept is... Coming around the corner. So. My, yeah, yeah, well, that's true. Well, we do have the growler too. I need to make sure. Oh, that's I, true. I recommend. I say. But I, that's. Oh, my, I was just going to say, PD Weber, that guy I told you about, was my uh, Rio in the F 14s. Yeah, yeah. PD's in that program as the pilotless uh, fighter. And uh, huh. he, uh, as a backseater, is one of the guys. Is, uh, taking, they take, they're taking it to the ship. They, mm-hmm. They've proven its uh, capabilities in, uh, in dogfighting. Uh, I obviously didn't train him with the crap, but the, uh, <laughs> you know, no, he uh, he knows what he's doing. And, is this and, loyal wingman program with Boeing? Or? Uh, he no, is what I can't answer who that okay. is. I just I, sure, not sure, that sure. I can't. I won't. No, no, I just no. can't remember what company. He's <laughs> okay. kind of on, on uh, a sub now, but I, uh, I don't, it wasn't Boeing though. Okay. I think it might have been Northrop. Uh, who's just working with him. Their own version. Yeah, but uh, they're they're doing wonderful things with it. And the funny thing about it is, me, me being an LSO, I I harped on it a lot, and he took a lot of that with him. He oh. talked to the people about the LSOs. He's going to LSO meetings, and he, he actually was listening to me at times because some of the things that I thought was very important, uh, he got into that program, and I'm yeah. really, really proud of him for what he's done. He was he's really done a good job. Huh, that, Excellent. You bring up a great point of just relationships. So as we oh. see technology expand. You know, it's not about, I don't think, me personally, so I don't think it's about the acumen of computing speed or right. technical acumen, let's say, sorry, but it's more about the relationship. And yeah, you brought up yeah. a great point. You know, your buddy listened to you and then he passed it on. And 
I mean, how do we get to the moon? It was a series of relationships with sure. NASA, right? You know, sure. you know the average so, age of the people that worked in, in the uh, command center on, on the moon landing? No. 27 years old. Wow. I, the only reason I know this is because I was just watching all those special, uh, specials. It's oh. the 40th anniversary. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. July yeah. 20th. And I, I yeah, just exactly. got my wings. We were in Corpus Christi huh. when they landed on the moon. And I was flying radios around with that. Okay, time. yeah. And so that time meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be one. I got offered PG school or the blues at the same time. Hmm. And I got <laughs> and took the blues instead of going to PG school. Uh, don't blame I, it. Don't I, had, I had my app in uh, the astronaut program from day one, from the day I signed up to be an aviator. I put my okay. in it. Yeah. Really wanted to do that. Um, so um, you're absolutely right. I, uh, he just called me last week. PD did. Okay. And we talked for over an hour. Yeah. Uh, my roommate in Vietnam is, I married his cousin. I mean, there are relationships mm. uh, uh, that never go away. I still, yeah. uh, there's a, f- a flight surgeon, uh, I think he's in Jackson Hole, uh, a guy named Rick Sugden. Uh, hmm. Just heard about him the other day through my, the chief pilot I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was going up to see him. And uh, Rick's brother-in-law was Boomer Wilson, who I knew from, I, he left the F-1 as I came in. Hmm. Uh, we had a guy working for, I was flying corporate for a while, a guy named uh, a Beaker, uh, uh, Wright was his last name. His dad, Mo Wright, was one of my instructors in flight training. And you know, I was working for him in the corporate world here after he retired as an F-18 senior. Okay. So, I probably is. He's a good guy. Did he look like Beaker? Yes, he did. Uh, that's him. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I always say people join the military to fly jets. Mm-hmm. They stay because of the people. Yeah. And, and, and that's, yeah, that's, that's because well you do it, you yeah. enjoy it. But really, it's the relationships. And even my wife will sometimes say, I miss being part of the spouses club. Or, you know, like at the airlines, you don't really have that shared sense of burden. They don't get together and go do fun things with the kids. So we miss it. And it's, it's all around. Yeah. Now, Sunshine, for this next question, I should probably remind everyone that the Fighter Pilot Podcast is about the aircraft, the weapon systems, and the people. Well, people come in many different shapes and sizes and there's pretty parts and there's ugly parts and there's things that we do that are a little less glamorous. So with that in mind, Mauricio, Mr. Ping Fernando asks, from the non-fighter pilot point of view, we get an idea of what life in the cockpit might be like. We see flight videos, we hear the sounds, we can taste some of the food you get. We can even explain the strain of G-forces on your body. But one part is not mentioned, he says. What does it smell like? Are all the planes the same due to the oxygen systems? Is there an unwritten rules for two C planes about in-flight flatulence? He says <laughs> farting, but I'll use my uh, public education there. Can you even smell the guy in the backseat if you didn't shower? Great question, Mr. <laughs> Ping. Haven't had that one yet in a year and a half of running this show. You've got some two-seat time. Uh, well, I always thought uh, the best defense is a good offense. <laughs> uh, You're sitting upwind. That's right. Uh, and, and, and Not always. There was one airplane where it went from back to front. I can't remember yeah. which one. Really? Yes. Was, was, was it back. super on it? Because I knew I flew it, whichever one it was. And that the person in back could really clobber the pilot. I'm sorry to hijack the discussion. No, no it was bad. It's like, uh, you might want to put your mask on. Well, that's, that's a good one. I think it was a super on it. Yeah. So maybe someone yeah, could help us out. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, there's nothing to be sorry about. Uh, well, the point simply was that it was hard to fight upstream. That's right. Well, and, and that's absolutely correct. Uh, most airplanes actually sit with the backseaters a little higher anyway. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, and everything that rises. So that's his problem, not mine. Um, but we do have oxygen. Uh, oxygen is uh, uh, fairly pristine smelling. Yeah, you yes. can't smell it. It's, it's completely odorless. So it gets worse 
uh, bad enough in there, you, yeah. you would put that on. And usually you're fine with it anyway, so you, you wouldn't really notice it that right. much. Unless it was extremely pungent. But I uh, uh, never really had a problem. Plus, most of my time was single seats. Right. Who did it? Oh, it was yeah. me. <laughs> well, but the airplane, besides flatulence, the airplanes do have a smell about them. Yeah, Just do. like a car does or if you go to your parents' house. And... Yeah, I miss it. You know, sometimes if I'm, for whatever reason, rummaging through my old stuff, especially if you have stuff from the boat, the boat has its own smell oh, too. No, it but, you know, it, it's it's part of it. And did either of you ever get to fly a brand new airplane? Like with that new car smell? Now, new cars have a lot of their smell because of the plastics that they Out use. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. But we don't have as much of that. And But I do remember flying a relatively new Super Hornet and something about the seat had a new smell and it was i was amazed because prior to that all i flew was old f-18s oh yeah so. we uh at the vx-31 we had a 50-hour super hornet uh, echo model okay and it did it was clean didn't have pylons had nothing on wow. it so it was a rocket ship and we used it for proficiency uh-huh. so we'd basically go out and do mock dives and see how fast we could get you know, nice. pushing the limit and um anyway i just remember walking up to it and the landing gear was pristine and that was the first thing i noticed because usually the white oh, paint is all right. chipped yeah. and dirty anyway yeah exactly yeah. none of that and then you get in the cockpit, and there was there was a little bit of a new car smell, mm. just a tad. It was pretty nice. So yeah. I don't know about you, Jerry. Uh, actually, I I flew the face. There was nothing new about it. <laughs> uh, in the F-14, I think we had a couple. When we started getting Block 85s out, uh, okay. Block 65 is what I went through training with in the okay. F-14, and then we got 85. And they wound up 105s and 120s, I think, later. I think the highest I ever got was a 105. And we had some new ones there. And they did. They had a new, new smell. Okay. There was a smell about airplanes that actually, one that stands out more than anything is, is cordite. After shooting the guns, oh. uh, there is there was a, it's an ammonia type smell that huh. was, uh, I, every time I catch a whiff of it, uh, I get remind, reminded of combat. I, I really really do. yeah. Because yeah. uh, anytime you shot the guns that way, yeah. And over there, we we did a lot. I mean, oh, we, we sure. actually did a uh, straight yeah. and other things as well. Very air wise, not so much. Smell has an interesting way. I'm not a scientist, oh, but of it does triggering. I, I was gonna say, your first girlfriend, you probably remember her perfume. And if you smell it out at the mall, sorry, why? You better stop. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, but you're right. This, this yeah. the sense of smell is strongly tied to memory. It is. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's a great hey, We're about uh, 13 minutes to go here. All right. Sunshine, so we got time for a couple that. Yeah, let's see. We, uh, I think the growing left-handed is a good. I mean, it's a good question. Yeah, sure. yeah absolutely. And they all are, but this is the, yeah, let's highlight okay. this one. So Ashley from Melbourne, Australia. So good day. Um, asks, how close in dog fights? Did I read the wrong one? Well, well, that, that's a good one too, but uh, oh, I'm sorry. Where's the growing Chris up Kelly, left-handed? Oh, I'm Chris sorry. Kelly. My apologies. My apologies. <laughs> sorry about that. Ashley, we'll get to you shortly. Chris Kelly from Georgia. Thank you very much, sir. He, growing up left-handed, I always, I was always compromising on daily tasks, writing notebooks, chalkboards, using scissors, etc. Also, I was usually the only lefty in my classes in the sports team from elementary through high school. However, in my engineering career, there are a higher concentration of lefties, and it is common to have left-handed colleagues. Or he asks, is it common to have left-handed colleagues? Since there is a, a concentration of engineers in military aviation, were there many lefties in the flying community? And he also asks, were there any compromises required for left-handed aviators? To answer the last part, no. There was nothing uh, nothing done just for left-handed guys. Mm-hmm. They're designed, you fly the airplane in your right hand, and mm-hmm. the throttle's in your left hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's the other way around, you're in backwards. So, um, <laughs> turn around. It's very uncomfortable. I did it again. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, no, they just, uh, 
they react. You learn how to do it. You really do. Um, But both hands are busy, too. Oh, very busy. It's not that one just sits there. Yeah, They're busy, but, okay, Jerry, picture at night, you got martial instructions. So oh, that's tough. You're one. right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I would honestly, I would rather be a lefty at this point because you could still fly and write with your left that's hand. Right. Whereas I had to start to fly with either my knees, which or the autopilot, or fly with the left hand and write with the mm-hmm. right hand for marshalling and all sorts of you know tanker. If it was uh, complicated, that's assault. what you had to do. Yeah, you just grabbed it and leave the throttle yeah. on. That's right. You got knee boards. I mean, that's what we had yeah. knee boards. You could write yeah. on it. But you're right. That's that's so that would be one advantage, I guess, yeah. in the lefty. In the cockpit. Well, and I think pilots just have to adapt because even in the airlines, the Airbuses and other aircraft, in the first officer who sits to the right has a right-handed control, and mm-hmm. the captain who sits on the left has a left-handed control. Never yeah. upgrade. You <laughs> <laughs> were 737s anyways. That's why I didn't have to wait. Yeah. So presumably right-handed pilots as captains have to adapt. And I think it's just something your body just says, okay, this is what I need to do. I'm going to figure out how to do it. Yeah. That's right. But for sure, the tactile feel is different. Uh, yeah. So. And, 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 and something that was implied in, in his question as well says uh, there's a, a higher concentration of engineers in military aviation. There may be now, but there wasn't when I started. I mean, my best friend was an animal husbandry major and a religion major. Eric Burns was a religion major. And he was one of the best I've ever flown with. Yeah. Um, they went into the scientific uh, time about 75 or so. I remember coming back. Uh, I'd gotten out of the Navy for a little time. And when I came back in, when I left, when you go to the club, everything was Corvettes and, and must, uh, some, there was no Mustang. Yeah, there were a few Mustangs and stuff around. But there were neat cars in there. You came back, you know, there were Yugos and Volkswagen Bugs and crap. And it was kind of embarrassing to go to the club. I parked across the street. <laughs> But and I am an engineer. So. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm outnumbered here. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's see. We'll keep moving here. So Ashley from Melbourne, Thank Australia says, how do close in dogfights work at night? Does it ever happen in combat? <laughs> and do you train at night for it? I can imagine this is very dangerous. This is the key part. I can imagine this is very dangerous. It will be difficult to train to. I think the bravest thing I ever did was, uh, you know, do some acrobatics at night. Okay. Uh, but doing dogfight at night, that's what beyond visual range is for, so it's radars for. Uh, if he's that dumb uh, to try to get you at night, uh, he's going to run into something. He's, he's not going to make it home anyway. So, um, I, no, you don't. You didn't. We didn't ever do it. We just didn't. I had to fly at night. Right. I shot the guns at night. Yeah, oh, I think yeah. I told you that's yeah. Yes, yeah. I didn't um, get a chance to do it. Uh, but that, that that's it. We didn't. Uh, you didn't dogfight. I'm about you guys. Been so for me, it's. ORM, operational risk management, right? So if I can get the job done without exposing myself to too much risk, in this case, dogfighting at night, then yeah, right. totally with Jerry. BBR yeah. and then go home. How many things give me the heebie-jeebies? But that's yeah. Dogfighting at Actually, night. in training, for example, in large force exercises up in Fallon, Nevada, East Reno, they have 180 degrees turn limitation. So if you end up at a merge with a live adversary, you can turn a little bit. The idea being that in that amount of time, if you were to continue to visually uh, maintain sight of the adversary, then you could hopefully employ a weapon. But no, we don't go out and do full. In fact, you have to stop dogfighting within 30 minutes of sunset. That's right. And no, no sooner than 30 minutes after sunrise because of the low sun angle and other things. Uh, in World War II, I believe there were some night fighters that had yeah. clothes within guns range, yes. but it wasn't dogfighting. No, it, it was, was radar. They had radar and right. the right. they were the only ones that had it. Okay. So. Uh, also, uh, one thing we used to do at night, when you, if you did anything over uh, Indian country or over bad guy territory, you turned your lights out, too. And right. I mean, you were invisible. Right. Yeah. There's nothing. You can't see anything. It's all red lights in the cockpit, and that uh, wavelength doesn't travel in very far. Nobody can see you. 
Yeah. So, and I've done that to people, you know, guys coming in on rendezvous just to get their attention at times, a night rendezvous, and have him get close, and he looks away. You can tell when he gets close because his wings <laughs> just turn the lights out. <laughs> oh, I'm right here. And I think for us in theater, it was because basically it was a very permissive environment. The air picture was resolved already, but mm. I kept my lights on. Very different. It makes sense what you did yours for. But basically in Iraq and Afghanistan, my concern was running into allied aircraft, right. other allied aircraft. Yeah, right? Right. So I keep those strobes and smashers oh, yeah. and all that, the nav lights on. Unless if we were getting shot at directly. Uh, so say we're orbiting uh, for close air support. I got shot at once. I did turn off the lights, but my wingman had an altitude separation. It was all very planned and we'll call it scripted. If right. you will. But we were there. We had, uh, there was nobody else flying. I mean, we were in. Yeah. And you're one, the one carrier up there flying. At night. Yeah. And so that guy and me are the only ones airborne in yeah. the tanker. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Joe, anything to add with the lights at night? No, not really. Uh, you know. No, nope, it is what it is. Okay. You want to finish with Jax? I think that's a good one, and we'll have to keep it fairly brief, and uh, then we'll be done. Yeah, so Jack LaRoe from Swanee, Georgia. Mm-hmm. He asks, what was the most defining learning experience in your career as a fighter pilot that you have to take a step back and think to yourself, geez, that was close, or I should have known better about a certain situation or experience, and how did you tackle it moving forward? Well, I told, mentioned that about my I-11 hop, my strafe hop. That was mm-hmm. the target fixation. Yeah, target yeah, fixation. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was yeah. the first one that really, really brought it home. Uh, there were several other every every aviator, and you get you know twenty thousand hours or so. Every aviator with all that much time, right. I guarantee you, has done some stupid things. So it just yeah. uh, things were lapses yep. in concentration. Uh, it just happens. Yeah. Um, and if, if you don't take them as learning experiences and as life moment changes, you you take a chance of not having another one yeah. uh, to remember. Yeah. So uh, you have to learn by those. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, I mean, I've had a bunch we haven't even talked about yet. Yeah, you've had a happened. lifetime of them, I'm sure. One that was kind of fun they might enjoy. Uh, uh, we had transitioned to the A4 in the blues. Uh, we were out flying, inverted. Uh, we hadn't changed uh, the tank ship, and the A4 had a tank that's about that big, and it had flapper valves on it. And when you went upside down, flapper valves closed and trapped a minute of gas mm. uh, at normal power setting. Well, I rolled and inverted, and I'm flying on 400 knots or so, and I'm right about center point in El Centro, and all of a sudden the engine quit. Oh, the engine. The engine. Yeah. <laughs> the engine. <laughs> the loudest quiet you have ever heard in your life. The loudest quiet. And once again, it's a reactive thing. You don't think about it. You know, it's easy to know what to do close to the ground like that and upside down. You don't pull. You push. <laughs> so you pushed out, got right side up, came around the horn, which means you pull the power around the horn. That's how you relit it. Right. Hit bang, hit the igniters, came back, and it started. So I'm pointed to the field, went back and landed. As it turns out that when they took it apart and looked, and that thing had like six flapper bells. Well, three of them had broke the springs that allowed them to do this stuff had broken and stuck open. So all the fuel ran out when it was upside nice. down. Uh, and so it was just fuel starvation is what it was. Yeah. Uh, well, we had um, learning moment. You know, it wasn't certified for that. It hadn't been checked for that yet, you know, for that length of time. Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't have been doing it. So I didn't. Sunshine, any quick... Actually, yours first. Yeah, okay, sure. Learning um, experiences? You know, uh, the one that comes to mind, and I've shared it on the podcast before, is I had a cut pass for power on the wires. Okay. And for whatever reason, I just 
thought that I kept going into Afterburner. And uh, thank you. Uh, as an LSO. Okay. I, was, I was young. It wasn't my cat ops okay, okay, tour, okay, please. Okay. Um, but certainly that was a geez that was close because had I trickled off the end, I'd been wet or dead. And it was just unnecessary. And I, it was unfortunate because, you know, it's one of these. Uh, it wasn't like I took a chance on purpose. It was just, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? And never did it again and got decent later. I snuck into the top 10 a couple times in my career. Hey, so, nice. uh, but, but that was, that was one. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was an S threes and I'm supposed to drop some flares for an F 14. Who's my buddy from the Academy, Ed, uh, she, he there. So anyway, he's in the F 14, always yeah. wanted to fly it, never got to. And it turns out it's dusk. So basically up high, we're in the sunlight coming down low. Now it's dark. I'm still admiring the Tomcat. Meanwhile, the water's coming up. <laughs> so poor, poor choice on my part to look left when I should have been staring at my gauges. I got really low, almost ran into the water. And that was a very big learning experience. How about a crewman there helping you out? Yeah, you know what? There, yeah, I, I don't know who it was sitting in the right, but uh, he... But his eyes were about <laughs> that big. <laughs> yeah, he didn't say anything. The most dangerous thing there is to fly over water. Oh, yes. Especially though that's the most dangerous thing. Yeah. Yes. Because it's hard to discern for everyone yeah, else. Yeah. We all know it. We're all nodding. But for everyone else, especially at night, uh, you, sky, ground, water, oh, yeah. well, ground is, is clear, but sky, water, very difficult to discern. Right. Time because I have one of those too. So. All right. Well, <laughs> they, hey, you know, people have said they'd like you to come back. In fact, there's one year I skipped. I could spend all day listening to his stories it, wait, wait, yep. or reading them in hint. hint. No. Oh, yeah. huh? I've started a couple of times. I'm looking for a good ghoster now. Okay. All right. <laughs> Don't well, that stuff. Jerry, we have about run out of time. I want yeah. to thank you so much for yes. taking the time Absolute today and being here. Absolute pleasure. Good. Uh, Sunshine, what's, what's some parting thoughts, shots, what? Uh, just uh, things like this. It's just a great. I just thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And the honor. It's my so, pleasure here. All right. Well, so we uh, we want to. You know, you're used to being paid for your time as an airline captain. You probably made several hundred dollars an hour. Well, for your hour, we're giving you one of our new <laughs> fancy. Everyone at home, this is now a patch of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, worth as least as much as an hour of captain time. Absolutely. But we want to present. This is our first one to give away. Really? And for everyone else, if you uh, head on over to Patreon.com and sign up. If you reach certain milestones, we're going to start sending these out to our supporters. Uh, just a little plug there for Patreon. But no, we want to offer you one. I didn't don't expect to see it on your jacket, but find a fun place. Or if you've got a nephew who enjoys these kinds of things, uh, please share it with him or her. But thanks very much for your time there. Okay. Excellent. All right. My pleasure. And everyone else back home, thanks very much. Sunshine, we almost got caught up on questions. Kind of nice. But we have a lot of uh, audio qu- telephone call questions. So we'll ah, do those on the next episode. By the way, which is on the F4. So I don't know if you know Tiger Kerr and Fingers Inch. Oh, but I, I, I know Fingers. Okay, right. well, I name-dropped you. <laughs> Into the break button. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned a couple of the things you said about fighting the F8 and the F4, so we're going to have a little fun uh, with that. We might have to bring you back after that airs on Monday, July 22nd. Otherwise, sunshine. What do we always say, Jello? Let's get out of here. All right. All right. See you. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.